Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Med- Medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Stephen. And I'm Anoush. On this week's New Station podcast... We discuss Pretty Patel. We prepare to go into the bunker to hide from COVID-19. And you ask us, is the Labour leadership election worth winning? So the kind of, well, I was actually the big political story. Obviously, the big political story is indeed just the big story in general, which is that this may well be the last NS podcast before we start, I don't know, doing it via Skype, you know, in our hazmat suits. But the, the other big political story is, of course, the allegations of bullying made against Priti Patel. There is now one for I think every department she's served in one from the DWP one from DFID and one from the Home Office we're overdue, we're overdue one from the referendum party press office but I'm sure it's <laughs> I'm uh, sure it's coming she denies all of the claims that is I guess kind of the big the big story of the week isn't it Anoush? Yeah I think it's it's a big story because not only does it tell us something about one of the sort of government's great hopes in the sense that she is a very important part of the cabinet she's someone who was once described to me by a certain spin doctor as a young Asian woman whose values appeal to old white men which is sort of the dream for a conservative government of this stripe so it tells us something about one of their most important players but also it tells us a bit about how this government operates as well. So, so far, she's denied it. They're backing her. Whereas I can imagine in, in a previous era where people used to actually resign and worry about their reputations, she might have even been gone by now, considering every single department has now corroborated that she's behaved in a certain way. Yeah, and the striking thing at PMQs today was, well, several things. One, the extent to which Deanna Davidson, who gets mentioned on every one of these podcasts, <laughs> uh, tweeted, the, it sort of preempted this by tweeting the other day something. Oh, no, she didn't tweet it. She was. Well, she tweeted a video of herself getting up in Jeremy Corbyn's urgent question on Philip Rutland's resignation, and she got up and said, you know, in Bishop Auckland, people don't care about civil servants. People care about this government's bloody brilliant agenda. Mm -hmm, And that was very much the vein in which Boris Johnson responded today, which was, he was asked by Jeremy Corbyn, will there be an independent inquiry? He replied, well, the Cabinet Officer on this, not what Jeremy Corbyn asked, but fine. And then he said... And can I just say, the Home Secretary is brilliant because she's banging up dangerous criminals and Mm. recruiting more police. Several backbench questions from the Tory benches said, you know, can I have some more police? Boris Johnson said, yes, absolutely. Thanks for asking. And Pretty Patel is brilliant because she's going to give you more police. Repeat Mm. to fade. There are a couple more questions from the Labour benches from Matthew Pennycook, who said, if the Cabinet Office investigation finds Pretty Patel guilty, will she resign? To which Boris Johnson said, Pretty Patel is brilliant. And then Thangham Debonair... Another, well, Matthew Pennycook's successor as Shadow Brexit Minister, that's a niche one, he got up and said, you know, why is this government so lax on bullying and, you know, horrible to the civil service, to which mm. the banks of Tory MPs groaned openly. Now, sort of, divining lines are drawn, but also 
this, in a perverse way, is almost a positive scandal for the government because it gives them an excuse to keep talking about the work Priti Patel is notionally doing other than allegedly shouting at some people, which is banging a law and order drum in a very loud way. I think that point about the you know the groan when you mention how civil servants are being treated is quite an important one because in a way this falls very conveniently and interestingly in the kind of culture war that the Conservative Party has been fighting and the way they've been framing certain debates within Westminster that like the people versus parliament vibe is continuing into this parliament and civil servants are sort of nameless, faceless entities who represent the sort of this very American idea of the deep state or this idea of a pro-Remain establishment who were trying to thwart Brexit. So now that these people are coming out of the woodwork to say that they've been bullied by Priti Patel. They're, in a way, an ideal enemy for this government. And also, in terms of the messaging they're trying to project, as you've correctly said, Stephen, Priti Patel, of all the people to be accused of something like this, she's maybe the the most on-brand in that it doesn't damage her brand unless these allegations turn out to be very serious. It doesn't damage her brand to be associated with being tough on people who work for her because her whole thing is about being tough on crime and you know tough on people. That's so part of her image that it doesn't surprise people that she'd be hard to work for. And I mean, and it's also like these wet blanket civil servants exactly. don't want us, don't want yeah. us to hang paedophiles. You know what I mean? Not yeah. the government. It's proposing they're trying to stop that. her delivering yeah, Brexit yeah, yeah, yeah. and building more prisons. And yeah, they they just don't like her. And and now they have a real person managing them. And and you know she's whipping them into shape. I think it falls so neatly with her entire. Brand. I also think the big problem here is that this isn't just a problem with this Conservative government taking on the civil servants or looking mm. or appearing to do so. It's a problem with how Westminster works. I mean, mm. the Labour Party on the whole backed John Burko and he has bullying allegations against him. I mean, we all know plenty of names of politicians who are bullies to their staff yeah. and nothing happens. I know this is a bit different because it's, it's civil servants saying so and they have better sort of HR structures there. But it is sort of like, <laughs> it's the zenith of a problem that has been in Westminster for, for all of time, and, and no one on either side of the house has, has really done anything to stop being the culture. Yeah, I mean, I don't quite think it is entirely accurate to say that if you want a list of MPs who are genuinely committed to getting rid of bullies, you just need to look at how many votes Meg Hillier got, which I think was something like 13. <laughs> 10. 10. But, it, but the number's not that much larger than 10, right? Because exactly as you say, right, partly because of the the inherently dysfunctional way that democracies recruit people, right? Like ultimately, yeah, it's just kind of like, ah, oh, I hear you're good at getting selected by a local party. Maybe you could also be an administrator, right? Like, what I thought was interesting is the way some sort of kind of pro-government commentators have sort of tried to defend it by being like, working in journalism, I didn't realise, you know, like, people shouting at each other is part of the course. And it's like, yeah, but that's because we also have a, like, promotion structure. It's like, I hear you're good at writing things. Maybe you could be good at managing people or corporate strategy. <laughs> then unsurprisingly, that makes for quite dysfunctional workplaces. But I also think, yeah, as, as you know, as Alva says, right, then ultimately... In many ways, I think there are a couple of trends which mean that I just can't see how she's going anywhere. One is, as Anu says, no one resigns. As Anu says, there's a structural problem with loads of with bullying just being a thing that people in politics just ignore because everyone is very aware of like, oh, oh, do we really want to pull at that thread? I think one of the really interesting hypotheticals of the last five years is that 
Jeremy Corbyn is basically the only person to have led a political party who had so little support in his parliamentary party that he could, and I think, to be honest, from a tactical perspective, parking any of the other considerations, one of the, the biggest missed opportunities in politics was that if Jeremy Corbyn had wanted to remake the parliamentary party, right, just by going yeah, actually, we are going to take allegations properly seriously. I am going to do, you know, kind of an expenses-style star chamber in the NEC would have allowed them, A, to to get rid of a non-trivial chunk of Labour MPs and have a much larger Corbynite intake, even the, the one they have now. But two, of course, it would have been a check that it would have been impossible for any Tory leader to, to match, simply because the Tory leader does have a power base in Parliament and therefore that thread is one that is always painful for them to pull. But seeing as whatever happens in the Labour leadership election, the, the era of, of the Labour leader not having a parliamentary base is, is over. You know, even Becky Long-Bailey has, you know, kind of close to sort of 40-odd supporters, right? You know, that moment has passed. But exactly as Alva says, right, and it's really interesting because you can see the, the, the line defending her is is actually deeply illogical, right? Because it's basically, on the one hand, it's like, this isn't true, and mm-hmm. it's because the civil service hate her, but also she's really tough. And, <laughs> and the problem is people haven't had any toughness <laughs> in, their, in, their, in their lives. I think, yeah, it feels to me the one... The one question is ultimately, like, if these allegations are true, they're not, they don't happen because the person is, you know, is mean or evil, right? Ditto, like, MPs who bully their staff don't do it because they, you know, go into work kind of cackling, going like, <laughs> I might talk about labour market rights on the floor of the house, <laughs> but in my own, yeah, like, yeah, I mean, I may have been in the Labour government, which literally made it illegal for employers not to, to, to not let you take your dentist appointment in working hours, but I will scream at my staff when I do it, right? They, mm. they, that's not what's happening. What happens is, is someone who cannot manage people is expressing their lack of ability to manage in a, in a toxic and negative way. And I think that is the, the kind of the shoe which could drop. Because I think what we're, the moment she would have to go and the moment where her political value to this government would cease would be if these weren't stories about she being a bully. They were stories about her not being across the brief, mm. which is a question mark over her than many Conservative MPs. And I think one of the very impressive things Downing Street has done is they did get a lot of MPs, some of whom have serious doubts for her ability to do the job, to either tweet the, you know, I stand with pretty or to stand up in the House and quite literally stand or, with Pretty. Or, or rewind to Boris Johnson's first cabinet reshuffle, or, or rather when he appointed his cabinet in July. One of the questions, I was going to say one of the questions lots of people are asking, one of the questions I know me and my weirdo group chat were asking mm-hmm. is, why is Kit Malthouse, Boris Johnson's you know, long-time wingman, for a long time entrusted with you know, doing the, the hard yards at City Hall and who pulled out of the leadership to support him, why is Kit Malthouse not in the Cabinet? And the answer to that was, along with uh, several other talented ministers, it's because Pretty Patel has had assembled for her a very good team of junior ministers. And what does that tell you about what Downing Street thinks about Pretty Patel's ability to actually run the Home Office and the tricky, more important bits of the brief like policing, which Kit Mulhouse is entrusted with? Hmm, draw your own conclusions. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. I joined in this week. I heard I heard last week, whilst I was out the room, my non-participation was criticised. Um, we're just reflecting the, you know, the listener survey back to you, Pat. There were real concerns. Uh, Anouche, this is a question that comes from, from your social circle. So yeah. Yes, so it is, is the Labour leadership election worth winning? So that is your means... friend Keir Starmer? <laughs> <laughs> so that means that... Basically, people assume that Labour are going to lose the next election. So why would you want to be leader in this painful sort of poison chalice period? So basically, we should discuss whether it is impossible for Labour to win the next election and also whether or not it would suit certain candidates to lose this time and then run again next time. A way to answer this question is by asking another question, which is when Neil Kinnock looks back on his career, will his assessment of his own sort of period in public life be Mm. sort of... I did sort of like a net good or is the disappointment of losing the election, you know, too great for me? Will that haunt me till my dying day? I think Mm. and I think the answer is if you are if you content yourself with the idea that you are probably not going to win an election in 2024. And if you're Keir Starmer, you would be fighting the 2029 election. Say he did, you know, put in a Corbyn 2017 style performance in terms of seats won. He'd be 67 by the time of the next election, the 2029 election. But if you're Keir Starmer and you think, oh, I can content myself with being the man who flushed anti-Semites out of the party, got it back onto an even keel ideologically, ended the more destructive iteration of the sort of factional forever war, which has sort of rocked the party in the past couple of years, then, yeah, it is worth winning because in the sort of broad sweep of Labour history, you'll be remembered as the sort of, <laughs> you remembered as the Michael Howard who put the party back yeah. on the road to electability. But then there's the... So yeah, if you're Keir Starmer, but obviously you know Keir Starmer will be probably thinking, well, Michael Howard won 198 seats in 2005. David Cameron formed the next government. I could do that. Ultimately, hanging over those questions is another question, which is, is it worth ever being the leader of a social democratic party in Western Europe ever again? Which is another <laughs> kettle of fish. But I, I suppose the actual the actual answer to the the, the non smart aleck answer to that question is, if you can content yourself with not winning, then yeah, absolutely, because there's a lot to do in. But I'm not sure politicians ever can content themselves with not winning. You'll probably know more about Keir Starmer's thinking on this than I do because you've been working on your profile. But I spoke to Michael Howard, who, like, I suppose history looks back at him as not someone who was particularly flashy or necessarily even leadership material about losing that election, but getting the Tories back on the path to victory. And you know, he was very proud of what he'd achieved and was really defending what he'd done when he was leader. But there were so many times in the interview where he kept saying, well, I wouldn't have done it like that. I wouldn't Mm. have prorogued Parliament. I wouldn't have done this, that and the other. Although, you know, lots of that was to do with Brexit. He is a Brexiteer and he was still thinking about how he would have done things differently had he been leader. And I think there probably is always that wistfulness on the part of politicians who want to win, right? That is Mm. one of their main... I feel like maybe a subtext of that question was, is it worth, for example, being Lisa Nandy and losing this leadership election? Will it actually pave the way for potentially another leadership bid and a much more successful and then A, winning the leadership and B, winning an election? And I think, I mean, lots of people have put that to me, which is why it's really good you ask us. I think they're probably right. I mean, not necessarily in the case of Lisa and Andy, but if you're a talented Labour politician, it probably is good if someone else does the, as 
Patrick says, does the clean up mm. and gets you back on the right track and you can take over the party in a healthier position. I mean, I found it really funny at one of the hustings, Emily Thornbury was talking about how she's been in the Labour Party her whole life and she really loves it. And, you know, she she's going to die in the Labour Party. And that's why she's, she's standing for the worst job in the world, mm. as she puts it. <laughs> and everyone laughed because, I mean, it's, it's just well known that, um, you know, it's not just the being a leader of a social democratic party, but being leader of the opposition is really, really hard. It's sort of well known that it's the toughest job in politics. And I think that whoever wins, as the leadership candidates have been saying, whoever wins will just find the TV cameras turned away from them and just will find themselves really, really struggling to get any airtime and make any impact. Yeah, and also don't people get bored? I mean, Andy Burnham ran twice, right? And then who else ran twice? Andy Burnham ran twice. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I'm going to cheat and say that I think Yvette Cooper ran twice. Right. In the, <laughs> so in in twenty in 2017, right? We shouldn't forget in 2017 the expectation of everyone, including most people in the leader's office, would yeah even by the end would say would gain votes but lose seats, and that there would be a contest, right? And Yvette Cooper and Chuck Ramuna both had campaign infrastructure and were you know and you know their people were phoning you know they had MPs lined up mm. to support them, right? There was a full infrastructure behind them and Yvette Cooper was I think at the peak of her popularity in the run-up to 2017 among MPs so it does show you can have and obviously Boris Johnson shows you can have a second coming I guess I sort of disagree with the premise of the question in three different ways the first is that voters sorry pals sorry (laughs) voters are more volatile than they ever have been right you can just see that by looking at say both at a macro level like look at the overall result but if you look at say Red car, right, which has had, yeah, like a double-digit swing from Labour to Lib Dem in 2010, double-digit swing Labour to Lib Dem in 2015, double-digit swing Labour to Conservative in 2019. But that's also the overarching story. So while in some ways, right, the result looks a lot like 2005 and you have the opposition party a long way back having to make a record number of gains... I just think there's a strong case to be made that it is doable. Yeah, and also, like, because Corbyn is such an outlier, it's very much like, well the Tories had a financial crash. But actually, if you think what will be in Labour's favour, they won't have Corbyn. So Tory swing voters in those south, mm. southern, the new swathe of southern marginals that the Lib Dems are challenging in will be much more amenable to voting Lib Dem. Yeah. There doesn't need to be a financial crash, but we don't know how the Brexit in the future relationship is going to pan out. So there is a lot of sort of not massive stuff that dominoes that need to fall. For yeah, and I think, and I, I very much say this is someone who is, you know, deeply sceptical about the ability of any of the candidates who are running's ability to pull this off. However, I just think ultimately I would much rather... It's an eminently winnable contest, partly because, yeah, I, mean, I was talking to a Conservative MP in a, in a Libcom marginal who said, my analysis is that I start the next Labour leadership, whichever one of them it is, having lost, right? They, 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 were, like, they, were, like, they were like, I can point to 3,000 people in my constituency who voted for me because they thought that a Lib Dem vote meant a Corbyn vote. Those people don't don't love Keir Starmer. They don't know who Lisa Nandy is and they don't think yeah, and they aren't that impressed by Rebecca Long Bailey because the only thing they've heard heard from her is the ten out of ten comment. Yeah. They're like but they aren't terrified by any of them. And they said, and you know, okay, yes, the flip side of that is all of those seats where the Labour majority is smaller than the Brexit Party vote share, right? And the Brexit Party won't stand next time. And, yeah, so what does that change things in that direction? Maybe. But, I mean, one, I, I also just think it's never good to lose anything. It's never good to lose a general election. It's never good to lose a leadership election. Also, in an odd way, right, even though I think it would probably be a 
deep mistake if yeah if let's say the Labour Party under Keir Starmer gains thirty seats next time. I think it would be a huge mistake for a number of reasons for him to to do a Kinnock or a Corbyn because the Conservatives will take their chance to change, and so you will once again have the dynamic of a Labour Party that everyone's heard of against a shiny new Tory party. Yeah. But seeing as I think the Labour Party's internal culture makes it fairly likely than if, yeah, let's say we did end up back in 2017 or 2010 style parliament, seeing as I think there's a good chance that the Labour leader would in that scenario get another whack at it. Yeah, of course it's worth, it's worth winning. I also think that Nandy is the example people use a lot. The really fascinating thing I think, and I want to kind of stress test how other people think about this take, is that in this leadership election she's exchanged support among MPs for support among party members, right? She is much more popular with the Labour selectorate than she was at the start of the contest. But lots of the MPs who backed her are just like, I'm sorry, I thought we were the small towns listening to people. And now we're the pro-free movement, you know, yeah. trans rights pledge signing. Yeah, like, just like, sorry, this isn't what I signed up for. Yeah. Now, obviously, Labour members have mattered a lot more than Labour MPs under Corbyn. Will that still be true under... Keir Starmer, who I think we all assume is going to win, and therefore mm. is what we think of as a good showing in a Labour leadership contest. Has that actually fundamentally changed? Yeah, and will that change as yeah. well? Yeah, will whatever she gets in in the in the leadership results necessarily be a good result mm. considering who the power brokers in the party are next time round? Yeah, that's a really I'm, good point. Yeah, I'm very interested in this idea that the initial Nandy supporters have gone off her because of the way the leadership race has turned out because I would wonder if actually as she maybe loses support or that support wavers among that core maybe she has broadened her support among the PLP more widely where people who are back in Keir look at her and think oh well she's more my candidate than I thought she would be and she's performed very well during the campaign yeah in my experience I mean obviously Keir has so many backers and there, pro- there probably is a mm. subset of Starmer backers who might think that but in the conversations I've had with Starmer backers who backed him because the juggernaut was unstoppable and had started the contest Nandy Curious, but ultimately was stopped by a little sort of niggling doubt about Nandy from backing her. The sort of testimonies mm. I've heard from them are, hmm, I, I didn't think this whole, you know, Nandyism as a structural critique of where the Labour Party had gone wrong before and what it needed to do could translate into a sort of coherent policy platform in which sentences could start and not be contradicted by themselves by the end of the sentences the sort of uh, slightly unfair but nonetheless groundedness kernel of truth reputation Nandy has got for sort of flip-flopping and contradicting herself over the space Mm. of like the same hustings has confirmed to those people that they were right ultimately not to take a leap of faith that's interesting because I suppose we've just been talking to different people but the impression I get is that lots of people had doubts about her because, you know, the first thing you that people would say when you asked them what they thought of Lisa Nandy was, oh, she's been, she's been doing really well so far in the contest. In the early days of the contest, they were saying this. She's been doing really well so far in the contest. She was good on Andrew Neil, but where was she during all, the, all those Brexit debates? She wasn't around. She wasn't speaking up in PLPs. She wasn't a natural leadership figure. Um, when we were really struggling with Brexit. But I, my impression has been from, from some of those people that as the contest goes on, she has proven herself to be more of a leader. Well, I guess the thing is, right, I think mm. in, in the PLP, right, there were sort of two question marks. One was, as Patrick said, like, what is Nandyism mm. beyond a critique of what has gone b- before? Like, is there actually a coherent economic policy at the end of this? 
And the second was the kind of like, as you say, the what was her position on the withdrawal agreement? I mean, one MP said to me, they were just like, look, I'm sorry, if you couldn't decide how to vote as a group of one, you are not qualified to lead a parliamentary party of 200. And those were the kind of the two question marks in the PLP. And I think then what sort of happened is, is that the people who had question marks about do you have a clarity about where you want to go, feel like she does because she has shown an incredible focus of to be blunt, pandering, right? Like, ultimately, she's had more positions than Andy Burnham. I, I, I don't race. think... I, I actually don't think this is fair. No. Before the interview that I did with Lisa Nandy last week, I did a lot of, like, reading long articles that she'd written for various journals and yeah. things. And she has actually been saying the same thing for a really long time. And so I think those Blue Labour MPs who may be disappointed by some of the things she's coming up with in the leadership contest were perhaps sort of using a, her as a sort of vessel for everything that they believed. And actually, she's always had what some people might call, you know, a contradictory or not necessarily consistent with individual Labour factions point of view about Labour's place in in the world or in the country. And I do agree that she's heavier on analysis than solutions. But so are the other. Oh, yeah. I mean, the the thing is, is none of the the leadership candidates, I would say, have emerged... Yeah, I would say, have any of them emerged stronger from it? I think Becky is, uh, has this problem, right, that lots of Labour MPs and kind of sort of Labour-adjacent, like, staffers have gone, oh, actually, you know, she's quite, you know, she's, like, quite a good performer. The stuff you were saying at the start, you know, yeah. she's, like, the safe pair of hands on the yeah, day yeah. programme. Ironically, a Labour MP said exactly what a Corbyn staffer said to me about Ed Miliband once, and they went, oh, I always thought Ed was very good, he's just fallen in with a bad crowd. And they were just like, oh, I think there's a good politician in there, she's just like, has fallen in with a bad crowd. But basically, almost all MPs do think that Keir and Lisa have pandered like crazy, right? Mm-hmm. On which things in particular on do you think? basically everything. I just think very few people in the PLP think that either of them genuinely do want to go into the next election saying free movement should come back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I did. I did ask yeah. her that actually, and she was like, "No, it's gone." Yeah, I mean, I think. <laughs> this is what I mean, like, on the central political issue of the final relationship, both of them have pandered like. But perhaps crazy. that's my fault for asking about it. You know, maybe maybe asking about free movement is actually irrelevant because it's going. But neither of them. Well, actually, I was about to say neither of them. That's actually slightly too fair on Becky, right? Because ultimately, Becky did also sign a pledge, going, "No, no, maybe it'll come back." But the only yeah. one of the candidates who has been willing to go, guys, it will be gone by twenty twenty four is Becky Long-Bailey. Yeah, but it, I think I kind of agree with Anush that it, it has felt like a bit of a stupid question in Hustings that like Newsnight really wanted a hard and fast answer on free movement and so on. It, it does feel like it is slightly irrelevant. Like That whole process will be sewn up by another government and they don't need to... Well, it? I suppose the actual, the actual... There's a good question wrapped up in that sort of gotcha, which is, will you go into the next election pledging to renegotiate the future relationship... If so, will you prioritise market access in such a way that we will need not just sort of like, hey, you woke yeah. Londoner, you know, put your latte down, tell me whether you'll let the immigrants in. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. I was, yeah. Gonna, I, yeah, I essentially agree with Patrick. I think the question, as it exists, I'm sure it was brilliant in Anusha's interview, but um, and I did ask that follow-up Anusha's question, but I did, I didn't get a straight answer. But, yeah, actually, like the the centrally important question is right. Is particularly seeing as all of the mood music indicates that. There will not be a trade deal by 2024, yeah. right? Yeah. So actually, yeah, this idea that it is necessarily finished is not true. Mm, but but then- also in 96, right, in the US presidential election, 
the Republicans did flirt with the idea that they would renegotiate bits of NAFTA, which is mm. is fair. And I'm not sort of educating on the wisdom or other, but I do think there is within the kind of not very good like question, particularly because it devolved to basically shout like ordinary people don't know what like going customs union free yeah. market means. Yeah. But yeah, the question is is does the Labour Party is it willing to live with the trade relationship that Boris Johnson gets back? And if it's not, what would its red lines be in that negotiation? And I think the, the the weird thing is, is despite the fact that some of those MPs who are like, I'm concerned about her judgment, would go, well, she's pandered just like the rest of them. Pandering is crucially a decision. Like, she has shown that she does have a focus and a willingness to win. So I think that kind of between your sort of two perspectives on where people in the PLP are at, I think that there are broadly some people who think that, like, she's shown that she can win and double down. I mean, one of the interesting stories in the PLP is the Blue Labour group have kind of shunted through a variety of potential leaders and decided they don't really like any of them, right? Like, David Lammy kind of used to be their thing, but then he was too pro-European. Lisa kind of has the right position on Brexit, but is sort of too liberal on almost everything else. Maybe Patrick is right and Stephen Kinnock will be the person who emerges as the leader of, of, of that tendency afterwards. I think all of which kind of yeah, I guess this is a long-winded way of saying I think that in many ways that is this worth winning is just like, well, the next leader may completely reconfigure who at the top of the party looks like. So, one, that's obviously quite an important prize to have, but it also means that, I mean, let's say, and, I, you know, I worry I come across as like, you know, the, the, the first and last member of the Louise Haig for Shadow Home Secretary campaign, but, like, let's say that Keir Starmer becomes leader and he makes Louise Haig Shadow Home Secretary which in my view would be a good appointment. And Louise Haig is very successful as Shadow Home Secretary. Mm. Well, then Louise Haig may well become the next Labour leader, right? Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, so yeah. Sudden, suddenly... Because there's a lot of people who haven't been given the airtime who yeah. could have been very successful over the past few years. So, yeah. Yeah, we don't know who would emerge. Because I do think one of the reasons why this field is quite weak is <laughs> that there was an extinction-level event yeah. in terms of who could who could plausibly run for it. Mm. And therefore, I'm afraid I don't think that any of these three candidates could win a leadership election against most plausible fields that will emerge under any of them. So we can't get through this podcast without talking about the coronavirus. Mm. And, I mean, the most useful way that we can talk about it, I think, is is what it's exposing about Boris Johnson's leadership and the way that this government works, because it's its big first test. I had a, I had a brief moment this morning of thinking I was about to, well, thinking I'd identified coronavirus's patient zero in Westminster, because I was an SNP MP. Carol Monaghan, SNP MP, said something like, you know, there's in PMQs, it's a really weird question, actually, but quite a good question. There are 650 of us here. We meet people from all around the world. We come from different parts of the country. We come here for you know four days a week, and then we're all cooped up together. You know, can we start video conferencing? To which Boris Johnson didn't really have an answer. But just after that, I had a very scary text conversation with an MP whose details I will anonymise so as not to embarrass them or get them put into isolation by the authorities. Who t- I was texting them, and I said, you know, let's have a coffee. To which they replied. Yeah, can you email my office because I don't have access to my diary because I'm not in because my my partner and my child have coronavirus, and I said, "Oh, uh, are you okay? Uh, have you they been tested? Are you in isolation?" 
And then I didn't get a reply for like five minutes. I was like, God, this is really scary. And then they replied, sorry, that was autocorrect. They have norovirus. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> also horrible. Yeah, yeah, horrible. yeah. But, you know, we're, we're all safe. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Imagine if coronavirus just, is the thing that makes Westminster yeah. like, update its voting system. I thought you had just dropped a huge scoop that two of the, <laughs> no, the no, coronavirus no, no. patients I thought, are I thought I was like, I was like do, I, do I shop my source to yeah, how do like, you Public that? Health England? Yeah. Or, uh, <laughs> I, mean, I was just sitting there when is, you were like, the I'm going to protect that? their identity. And I was just like, Patrick, blah, 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 <laughs> we, we wouldn't name them on the podcast, but I don't think lobby rules... Yeah, I don't think if an MP goes up to you and goes, by the way, I'm planning to kill someone. You're like, oh, unfortunately, it was in the parliamentary estate. So uh, no witnesses. <laughs> like, um, but it, it, it's, it's an odd one, isn't it? Because I had a terrible one where I almost got the giggles on radio the other day when someone said, at the end, they were just like, what do you think the political consequences of, of you know, if, if coronavirus does spread will be? And I was just like, I mean, I don't know because... We've never had a situation where, you know, a fifth of people have been off sick and, you know, loads of people have died. That, that, that we, we have no, there is no precedent for that in an era of mass enfranchisement. So I imagine the consequences would be large. <laughs> and it's one of those things where you know, just think, like, I don't, I don't quite understand. Yeah, like, yeah, to kind of let people lift back the lid. The, one of the weird conversations and obviously all media organisation having is like, is, you know, like, what is our COVID-19 angle mm. other than, you know, hazmat suits? And, of course, it's one of those things where, from a political perspective, there is no angle because, mm. uh, you know, it's, just, it's odd because MPs do all think that they will end up having to be quarantined because, yeah, they meet. I was talking to an MP and they said they were like, look, even the laziest MP probably ends up meeting about a 1,000 people every week, right? And also lazy MPs are more likely to go on foreign junkets and <laughs> uh, go for lunches at random embassies. So, you know, it's the... I'm not going to name... MPs who love foreign junkets, everybody can see the Register of Members' interest, but keep an eye on the Tory butt benches for people with colds. Yeah, and um, there were also a thousand attendants at the British Kebab Awards last night, which is a big Westminster calendar event. Yeah. Lots of MPs there, no including, including Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think in terms of whether there's an angle or not, I think the thing I'm interested to see is whether one emerges, because I think there is a clear political fault line over a sick pay and the way some people are entitled to statutory sick pay the Tories. That was a very clever bit of opposition from Lisa and Andy actually. Yeah. They're like are you going to pay these people? Yeah well, and then they then they announced in PMQs today that they're going to be giving statutory sick pay to people from day one of them being off sick rather than day four because you don't want to penalise people who are self-isolating and taking care of other people mm-hmm. but there are plenty of people who aren't eligible for sick pay and they still won't be under this system and Boris Johnson has just said that that can be taken care of under universal credit yeah. um, and I wonder if that will, will start to dominate the debate as coronavirus starts to highlight the precarity of work under successive Tory governments because you know they talk so much about people being in work and this is just another way of highlighting the insecurity of those jobs and the lack of safety net but also B I mean this is very different to previous flus because the NHS is in a really bad state at the moment and I wonder if that will become a fault line. I really hope it does because Mm. lots of people who are employed by agencies rather than employers themselves work in these kind of industries where they're at a high risk. So cleaners, 
hotel maids and hospital staff mm. in NHS hospitals who are exposed probably to more people from around the world, ill people, who are employed by these agencies that don't have the same practices that a, a, that a regular employer would have. So often they don't get sick pay, they don't mm. get holiday pay. Sometimes they're not even given contracts, like a lot of them can't speak English. They have to be represented by these em- em- employment lawyers and if they don't have access to them and are too scared to join a union, then they basically don't have any rights. And I feel like with all the talk of the gig economy and how sort of Uber drivers and delivery riders are exploited, these sort of more traditional, like, ex- exploited agency jobs are kind of ignored. So I really hope it shines a light on that because mm. no one ever talks about it. In many ways, right, it is the kind of stress test of all of the things that you've been writing about in the Crumbling Britain series, right? Like you have people who notionally work for the state, but actually there is no direct lever that the Secretary of State can pull to make them behave or be remunerated in a certain way than they can with directly contracted staff. There's a welfare system that is, in theory, ought to be perfectly designed for you just to be able to like press a button in the DWP and go, don't worry, we've given everyone X amount through their UC. But mm. of course, in practice, UC's implementation and its delays mean that it's very difficult to actually do that. And the tax credit system that it replaced was not much better at dealing with that kind of thing either. And then, of course, you have this sort of big policy gamble, which is then putting money into the core NHS is not just good money after bad because of the lack of money in local government. And, you know, one of the reasons why, so their three-point plan, if if you are, you know, uh, maybe if you've self-isolated and therefore haven't been bothering to follow the news for everyone else, the sort of the second point is if it can't be contained to delay it so that you aren't having to fight it at the same point as the flu season. But the structural problem the NHS has is that basically every winter it, its performance indicators go down a bit and it can't ever recover because it acquires more old people with overlapping comorbidities. That's basically a series of conditions, none of which are individually going to kill them, but taken together make them very hard to discharge. Mm. And we now have this kind of big meteor that is going to stress test the extent to which any of those things can be overcome simply by a government in Whitehall pulling levers when it has made a, well, not this government, but its Conservative predecessors, particularly the Cameron one in 2012 for the Health and Social Care Act, has made a virtue of going, no, 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 I don't want these levers. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, my colleague Anusha Kellyan, our political correspondents, Patrick McGuire and Alva Ray. Thank you so much for all of your responses to the survey. And if you are enjoying the New Statesman podcast, please do leave a review. Keep an eye out for the latest listings in the Cambridge Literature Festival. All of us will be there talking to people, interviewing people about their books. It'll be a great fun time. It's recorded by Emily Bootle, produced by Nick Hilton. Our music is devil by the devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Mm-hmm.